So, hello and welcome to another edition of Spotlight, the Star Trek podcast where we view the world of Trek from a non-Trekky perspective. I'm Liam Dempsey and I'm joined by my usual co-host Matt. Hey guys. And Paul. Hello Spotlighters. <laughs> and we are joined by a very special guest today, Dean Burnett. <laughs> Dean, who are you and what do you do? Dr. Dean Burnett. I'm a neuroscientist by training, an author by trade these days. i uh, currently uh, written four books now, working on my fifth. Uh, the Edith Brain is my first one, seemed to go a lot better. I also worked for the, wrote for the Guardian for six years, uh, the brain flapping blog there. Um, did a lot of teaching as a psychiatry program and lots of freelance science punditry is my thing as well. Uh, I was on the comedy scene in Cardiff for a while and that's, well, insofar as that's a thing anymore, uh, I'm not on it right now. I'm busy with stuff like this, which is much better. Generic go-to science guy, I suppose, is what I sometimes label myself as. I'm like a gateway scientist, not a proper one, but you read my stuff and you see what the the real guys get up to after that. This is just who we've been looking for this whole time, Dean. This <laughs> well, is the exact level we needed. Yeah, the exact... <laughs> did you, did you combine science and stand-up? Mm. Was it a science-themed set you had? Um, at first, no. I thought I'd keep them very separate, my science and comedy interests. Because I thought, well, no one's going to like a science comedy set because, well, logically they wouldn't, is, as my assessment was. And then I was just a rather bland stand-up. But then one night I just got a bit bored and started talking about uh, the fundamentals of uh, neurocircuitry and people started, started listening. Uh, they were laughing, but it was a step up from what I was getting before. So uh, <laughs> I became a bit more niche in my output in that respect. I did comedy because I was actually working uh, before my PhD in, uh, as a cadaver embalmer for a medical school. So I was handling mm. dead bodies all day, every day. I, would, uh, I just thought like, oh, I was becoming quite morbid, as you might imagine. And I thought, I'll do some comedy. I always wanted to, and I had the guts, but can't be worse than this. And I practiced my first ever set in a room full of like 50 cadavers. I thought, good practice. We're doing jokes in front of people. None of them are laughing. <laughs> it gets to be worse if a random corpse did start laughing. <laughs> yeah, like, wait like, a minute. But better <laughs> to find out that dead. way than <laughs> before I embalmed yeah. them. <laughs> You've got a podcast as well, haven't you, Dean? Uh, I have sort of two on the go, but they're on a sort of hiatus right now because um, this is all pandemic thing going on. It's kind of hard to have guests, and I've had sort of you know I've lost family members to the plague and stuff, so it's kind of been um, been a difficult year. But uh, yes, uh, when I get back to them, I've got the Brain Yapping podcast, which I'll do. I do with my friend Rachel, who is um, just sort of a journalist writer who probes me my brain stuff, and I see if I know it on the fly. And mm. the podcast Smart Welsh People, uh, which is about trying to challenge the stereotype that we are as a, as a nation, lovable but kind of dim. And it's um, it's, it's an uphill struggle. I won't deny, but it's it's, it's bearing <laughs> fruit so far. So hopefully, I'll be able to put some preconceptions right in this Star Trek podcast. That's great. And today, uh, you're joining us for a very special supplemental episode the science of trek but before we get into that dean can you give us your star trek credentials so this is what have you seen what haven't you seen what are your favorites and your personal connection with star trek okay um i haven't seen much of the original series um seen all of next gen all of ds9 all of voyager all of the films apart from the first one which i'm not especially enthused about uh, <laughs> catching up on after i listened to you guys talk about it skipping enterprise there as well i saw the first episode and i was sort of like okay i, I could sort of see how this might work and then i went to university where i didn't have sky anymore uh, so i you know it, it just sort of fell out of favor with it but um i haven't seen um any of discovery yet conscious decision i'll get into that yeah so i, I, I have personal connections in that uh I have a very rare privilege of saying that one of the prominent members of Star Trek is actually a fan of mine. Uh, my first book, The TV Rights, was sold to one Whoopi Goldberg, who I still work with occasionally now. And 
uh, thanks to this podcast, I did find out that um, uh, my friend Dan Thomas, your recurring guest, uh, he and I were actually at the same Star Trek convention when we were much younger, before we ever met. And he's the reason oh. he's the reason <laughs> oh, I never wow. met Chekhov, I now found out. <laughs> so I told my mother she was flabbergasted. <laughs> he stormed out after yeah. the big to spell Welsh names. I vividly remember Mother saying, where's Chekhov gone? We thought we were going to his autograph. We just gone. I don't know why. And then it turns out because Dan Thomas pissed him off. So that's a strange connection many years this later. This is the small Trek world we yeah. have cultivated Oh, here. thanks to Spotlight. Thank you for that. That was, that was very... Yes. I, I was like a mystery. I, I didn't know I needed solving until it was solved and then I was very happy to hear it. So. The mystery of the disappearing Chekhov. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, how, uh, how was it you came to... So Whoopi Gobbo read your book. Is that right? Yeah, um, she read it, uh, yeah, well, obviously in America, where she lives, and um, I just got an email out of the blue one morning, uh, just packing to go to London to visit the in-laws, and it was from my agent, who emailed just said, are you sitting down? <laughs> At the time, I was actually on the toilet, so I replied, technically, yes, what's the matter? And <laughs> he said, are you sure? I said, get on with it, Chris. And he said, well, he just had an approach to buy the TV rights, uh, which I didn't know, again, I didn't know it was a thing, and anyone was reading this yet uh, for the for the stateside release, and it's the company owned by um, Whoopi Goldberg. I thought, yeah, okay. I thought we would arrange a sort of conference call to discuss it, and I assume we'd be talking to, you know, producers or lawyers, or, you know, I've seen, I've seen the films where they show you, like, how TV productions work, people in suits and stuff, and dialed into this um, conference call at 8 o'clock on a wet November Monday in, in Cardiff, in my loft, so it's quiet, and then uh, just Whoopi Goldberg answered the other end. I was like, "Oh, good lord!" I'm sat here in my pajamas talking to Whoopi Goldberg apropos of nothing. <laughs> what a very weird life this is. She's, she's an incredible human being. She's exactly <laughs> as you expected to be. She's not put on any airs or graces. And that um, she's wonderful. In that, uh, halfway through the meeting, uh, she said, "Oh, we haven't. It's me, her partner, business partner, my agent, and and her." And um, she said, "Oh, we haven't. We haven't introduced ourselves yet. I'm Whoopi. I'm an actress." Is it? We, we we are kind of uh, familiar with like oh you're that Whoopi Goldberg okay yeah. <laughs> <laughs> many many Whoopi Goldbergs I encounter in Asda but so, <laughs> so yeah it was a very um yeah very it's very oh my god so so was that the start of a beautiful friendship as they say yeah, you stayed in touch uh, we still yeah, talk back and forth she's um she tried, she's offered to buy a couple of other book things which they didn't didn't you know, the first. It's very hard to make TV even when there's not a pandemic on, so nothing has actually come mm. of it yet. But we are still uh, in communication, and um, it's kind of odd, sort of cyclical thing in that I definitely think that, uh, you know, I'd say like Star Trek is the reason I got interested in science in the first place. And it was because um, my mother, like, like as we say, like, you know, many other people, like my parents were fans of it, and but they were watching like the original series and the films. And I didn't dislike it, but I was never really into sci-fi, particularly at that point. It was a bit too young, and came in where they're watching mm-hmm. the one of the one of the films, and I, I just think, oh, they're watching those space granddads again, and that was essentially <laughs> how I thought of Star Trek. And then they started watching Next Gen. I thought, I, I thought that guy was meant to be a Vulcan. No, he's white now. He's like they explained it's a new series. It's okay, that's fine. I don't really care either way. Then I came in one day where they're watching one episode, and it uh, involved um, what the, the bald captain being taken on this big cube ship and being turned into a robot. And I just instantly got hooked. Like, I was like, <gasps> the entire time. And then it, uh, that classic ending of, you know, fires. No! And then I didn't know when it was coming back on. I didn't know what the deal was. I was just <laughs> like, no, 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 you can't leave it like that. And um was frantically looking for it for the rest of the summer. You know, I didn't I didn't know when it was coming on. I didn't know what the broadcast schedule was. I was new to this entire world. But it just really got me into it. And then since then, I've sort of just got really interested in just the whole idea of science, of exploration and going beyond your boundaries because I'm from a very small valley community. So it's like a whole idea of exploring and a bigger world out there and yeah that's how i got interested in science and that's how i'm like this now and mm. uh, obviously that episode featured a strong presence of Whoopi goldberg who then 
later on <laughs> bought my book. So uh, now we've uh, almost come full circle in a way. Yeah, it's interesting. Mm. I think we've definitely spoken to people who had Star Trek as their gateway into bigger sci-fi shows or media. But I guess with someone who's you know, had Star Trek as the way into science itself. Yeah, kind of. I think I came into neuroscience, like, like I say, when I left to university um, when I was uh, obviously 18, but uh, like Enterprise had just started. Literally, like I saw the first, the first pilot episode, which I didn't dislike. I thought it was fine, but I was like, uh, I'm not too... Mm, I go again. It's like it's a pilot episode that always a little it's bit. It's exactly yeah. the feeling I have with any prequel, usually. Mm. Huh. Great. Yeah. No. Don't need to know. <laughs> that, that's, it's it's, it's yeah. distinctly lacking in drama as soon as you know it's set in the past. And that, that, and before something that where you know it ends, how it yeah. ends. And that actually has been a big thing for me because, like I mentioned, like I haven't seen much of Enterprise and I've actively not watched Discovery. I've seen the JJ films because, like, they were films and stuff and I enjoyed those but I very very quickly got a serious dose of prequel fatigue for various reasons and that's like this might be a controversial stance to take but I am quite tired of always treating Kirk and Spock as the default Star Trek I find it exasperating and no again it's a it's also a personal thing like you you, like I said I came into it via next gen via a very powerful moment so that was always my default Star Trek between 1999 and 2002, we had the end of DS9, the end of Voyager, the end of the Trek film series. Yes, I know Nemesis wasn't exactly great, but you know that's we had three climaxes. And there's so much they, they left unsaid. Like in Deep Space Nine, they had the whole thing about the Dominion War. In Voyager, they came back and brought all their... I know, you know, I know if you not see the finale, you know they come back because Jane Ray's in Nemesis. So um, I know Nemesis, like the whole Romulan thing. So there's so much potential there for you know, expanding this story further, this whole world. We've just mm. spent three whole series and four movies looking into. And I was like, oh, what happens next? Like, there's so much scope to what to do. And then we spent 18 years going back to... Remember Kirk? Well, this was happened before that. Hey, remember Kirk? This is what happened. Also slightly different. Hey, remember Kirk? This happened before that, but not as before as the one before. I got, I got, I'm really annoyed because like, you know, the one ethos of Star Trek is to boldly go where no man has gone before. And we just spent like 20 years going where we have been before, again, again, again. And it really got my nerves to the point where Picard came back. And I did really enjoy it, but... I'm not sure how objective I could be because I was just, I'm the guy who sat there waiting for 18 years to see what happened next in this storyline. And although the yeah. theme tune is great, the one thing that kept in my head as I sat down and watched the first time in 20 years pick up the story, I was, all I could think of was, it's been a long road getting from there. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long time. But my time You'll is actually <laughs> come back Enterprise, always forgiven. <laughs> yes, so it was, but by the time Voyager came on, everyone was kind of knackered. The franchise was. It was in viewing figures, and like they, they had done a lot with it. So yeah, have a fallow yes. period, do another next next generation. I don't care, but it was something. I think there was so much scope then to pick up where the story left off. It struck me as, if I'm being totally honest, it struck it's max of cowardice to me to keep reverting back to the safe space of Kirk and Spock. And like, in science, we don't do that. Like you know, I I get exasperated with it in the world of science when. Like I'm, I work in psychology, neuroscience, like, uh, psych, psychiatric stuff, and people say, oh, I, I subscribe to the Freudian school of thought. And it's annoying because Freud was the father of psychoanalysis. He was a genius. He achieved many great things. But even if you discount the fact that he was off his box on cocaine most of the time, the stuff he thought of was 100 years ago. Stuff has happened since then. You know, we have maybe a more tangible example, the Wright brothers. They invented the airplane. Incredible achievement, massive legacy. Do they deserve respect for that? Yes. Should they be acknowledged as trailblazers? Yes. Am I going to fly on a balsa wood plane held together with twine anyway? No, no, I'm not. Because that isn't, you know, we have progressed since then. And I don't, 
you know, I, I get kind of, I'm not really good at looking back on stuff. It just really is counterproductive to me. And that's why I've been a bit exasperated. I haven't watched Discovery yet, but now they've gone to the future. I think, oh, well, maybe I will now. Now they'll, you know, they'll pick up some sort of story. So, yes, those this are my self This is what I was say. <laughs> like, I didn't want to spoil, but yeah, obviously the new season very much feels like this is what the show should have always been, as in going mm. to the future, <clears throat> pushing forward. I did really enjoy Discovery's first two seasons, but this really feels like yeah, this is what the show should have always been. This is what you were waiting for. But, you know, that's that's the way with most Star Trek shows, really, isn't it? You get to season three, and that's when it really <laughs> starts, yeah. you know. Uh, although, <laughs> not quite the case with Star Trek, the original series, which brings us to the first mm. episode we're going to do today, Spock's Brain. Star Trek, the <laughs> yeah. original series, season three, episode one. This was the season premiere, so I mean, you know, usually most shows that they want to launch, the they want to launch big <laughs> yeah. with the new season. They want to yeah. say like this is a special episode. We're going out something that's going to entice new viewers in. So obviously, Gene oh, in his special. wisdom said, "Right, <laughs> yeah. Spock's fucking brain, get it on." So this was first broadcast on twentieth of September, nineteen sixty-eight, and I just wanted to point out that this is quite an interesting thing as we were talking about not knowing when you were going to see the conclusion to the cliffhanger of Best of Both Worlds. Fucking hell. Back then, you really had to wait a long time between mm. countries to see Star Trek because this was first broadcast, as I say, in the US in 1968. was not broadcast in the UK until October 1971. So like, <laughs> you really had to wait a long time to get Spock's brain. This Just was get written... your Star Trek spoilers from yeah. your pen pal. <laughs> Yeah, this was written by Gene L. Kuhn, who wrote 13 episodes of the original series, including Arena, Space Seed, and a piece of the action. So he was a good, he wrote some classic episodes yeah. there. Um, That's good. Also, just, uh, he was basically the producer of the show, de facto, after Roddenberry yes, yes. stepped back. So he his, was a his, on he's show. a massive part of the original series. Yeah, for good, 100%. For good. 100%. Mostly good. Not today. Um, also wrote the script for The Killers, the Don Siegel film starring Lee Marvin. Uh, so he was a film screenwriter well, as well. Well, it's a remake, isn't it? Yeah, 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 indeed. But I mean, you know, Lee, Lee Marvin, Don Siegel, that's quite a team. Just, you, just copying, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it's a coffee mate. He wrote lots of Western <laughs> films as well. And he also wrote the script for the Questor tapes, uh, which is one of Gene Roddenberry's many failed pilots in between Star Trek, the original series, and The Next Generation. Directed by Mark Daniels, uh, who directed 15 episodes of the original Trek, including The Man Trap, which is the first ever broadcast episode, and The Naked Time, the two-parter, The Menagerie, Space Seed, Who Mourns for Adonis, which is a favourite of yours, Paul, of course. He also directed the first ever episode of I Love Lucy. Lucille Ball, often kind of credited with kind of saving Star Trek in a way. He's directed a lot of stuff. And yeah, Spock's Brain, notoriously considered by many to be the worst ever episode of the original series. And not actually the lowest rated on IMDb mm. though. Uh, the lowest rated on IMDb is And the Children Shall Lead. Which we yeah, covered. Yeah, that one. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, was there a reason how the Trek didn't this do get this made in the uh, the worst of Trek episodes? Yeah. If, it's, this if we went by those, I'd be raised. 
very close. Although, I mean, I, I, agree. <laughs> I personally don't think this is as bad as uh, The Children mm. Shall Lead. That was definitely... Yeah. definitely I, I shall agree there. I don't think And The Children Will Lead is the worst one either. I think it's maybe the second worst, but the worst one actually is in season one for me personally, which was the alternative factor. I think it's like basically bookended by great episodes but it's just absolute shocker <laughs> that is near the end of season one i think episode 28 and it's just absolutely ghastly it actually made me feel physically sick it was that bad <laughs> okay. what happened? Uh, because it made me want there's, to destroy well, there's, there's my like television. a uh, sort of very psychedelic trippy effect where they spin the camera around and it all goes zooming around i think it's like some kind of like interdimensional traveler who was cast at the last minute who's absolutely woeful uh, <laughs> in it um but it's terrible mm. i think you know at least these have something going for them which is that well this one's entertaining at least yeah, stuff happened to this uh, one there's definitely it, a, yeah, something it definitely, it definitely feels like this laugh, one that spot screen at it. was considered like the worst <laughs> and now in recent years it's being claimed more of a like so bad it's good because i've seen a few recent yeah. lists like <laughs> sci-fi and wired did lists uh, in the last few years saying you know this is a commonly disliked episode but it deserves a second chance so mm. <laughs> yeah there, there's, there's give it that seriously boring ones in the third season as well <laughs> There's, there's one where they're tra- transporting an alien being that's like, you can't look at it and it has to be kept in a box. And uh, oh, that whole episode is just... <laughs> Translation, no Have budget. you seen that one? Like, <laughs> the... Boring, boring. <laughs> Matt, have you got a plot synopsis? Yeah, so in this episode, an alien, played by Mari Doucet, uh, beams aboard the Enterprise, and after incapacitating the rest of the crew extremely easily with her magic arm bracelet, uh, surgically removes Spock's brain. So it's up to Kirk and the crew to locate and restore it before Spock's body dies in just a few hours. So you know we have we got we got high stakes. We got a ticking clock. It's got elements that should make this work, but a lot of it does feel very flat, huh? And the kind of just element of oh no, my brain's been stolen. It's quite <laughs> oh, literal no. and it's quite silly. <laughs> Is, is this true, Dean? Can you remove... Do you have 24 hours to put the brain back in if you remove it? <laughs> okay, so let's... Well, obviously, I picked this because when you're a prominent neuroscientist on a Star Trek podcast and you don't do Spock's brain, I think people might actually complain because quite clearly <laughs> yeah. it's the episode about brain surgery and neuroscience. So I kind of feel like a fresh obligation to tackle this. And I did a... Like, as I was watching it, I tried to tweet about it as well. So you've probably seen my notes on this. You have to put it in context. And I do think this is important that I'm not one of those guys who like watches Star Trek or any sort of sci-fi and says... Ah, well, actually, I think you'll find that uh, in episode 359, they established that this is a fundamental property of this. It doesn't happen. I don't think that really lends anything to it. I know it's a story. I know it's um, it's good that the science is in it, and I think if they adhere to it more than most shows. Uh, perhaps competitors, I think, for accurate science would be uh, the X-Files, obviously, because they've got Dana Scully just constantly spouting the actual technology stuff, but then she gets constantly told she's wrong, so... Not exactly probe science, it's just there, which is a, you know, it's a mixed blessing. Uh, SG-1, I always thought it was really good for it, uh, because you know, the stuff they said was actually quite, in my personal view, my memory of it, was quite um, authentic. Uh, but then you've got a main cast of four. Two of them are actual super nerds, and one is literally MacGyver, so you're going to have a lot of problem solving going on. But these are shows based in, you know, the modern world, they've sort of convinced us that this is happening around us, so like, oh, at least we're giving that idea, so you have to make it at least somewhat grounded. So, and I, I don't insist or demand accurate science and stuff, but this one still was 
kind of ludicrous in many ways. Well, extremely ludicrous in many ways from a scientific perspective. But even in the context of the 60s, when we didn't know as much, so that's, like, that's like 60 years ago now, like neuroscientists come on leaps and bounds. This is before the invention, or at least before the mainstream acceptance of brain scanning technology. We didn't know much about the brain then. This is written and made at a time when most of what we knew about the brain was from brain injuries. And they sort of had to wait around for someone to have a brain injury and then see what happened to them and then figure out why it happened. What sort of, dis- uh, not even discomforted, just struck me about this one is there are elements of genuinely accurate science in it. Like they keep mentioning Spock's autonomic functions, which is you know, the actual legit term for the things your body does without your brain being involved. So there is that you know aspect of it. Someone clearly has had a part of this. They mentioned Spock's medulla oblongata controlling blood flow and stuff, which is, you know, it's, the, it's the valid scientific term for this. You know, someone has actually been at this mm. in a way which makes it scientifically accurate in some standards, but... <laughs> the concept. Somebody read yeah. a book about yeah something about a brain. Yeah. At what point yeah. does it veer off the cliff? <laughs> well, yeah, there's, there's plenty of very very fun bits. It's, McCoy calls Kirk down to the sick bay. Kirk says, "Is he dead? He's worse than dead. His brain is gone." We normally those amount to the same thing. I'll say that much. Um, <laughs> I haven't had, have had an example where that's actually been no different things. But um, Kirk says, "How could he survive?" and this, this actually quite struck me because I've actually had genuine discussions about this in real life. How can you survive? And uh, McCoy says, every nerve ending of the brain must have been neatly sealed. Nothing ripped, nothing torn, no bleeding. Okay, fair enough. There's no bleeding. But when you remove someone's brain, it isn't like the blood loss which kills them. It's the whole removing the brain part which kills them. So <laughs> you're sort of solving the wrong problem here, McCoy. It's a bit odd. <laughs> Do you think actually, they get away I, yeah. with everything is the fact that it's like he's a Vulcan? So he, presumably he's a different kind of physiology and they could just go, anything that they get wrong, they could go, well, Vulcan, so... Well, you could think that, but um, McCoy actually completely changes his story in the, in the same scene. Like, when they said, how did he survive this? He says, well, his strong Vulcan physiology kept him alive without his brain for a bit. So, like, they managed to get him to sickbay and hook him up to whatever they need to hook him up to. And in the exact same scene... McCoy said, but because you know, he's Vulcan, he's more dependent on that powerful brain to keep him alive. So it, it was 20 seconds earlier you said he didn't need it as much, and now you're saying he does. It's in, it's, the scene hasn't changed. Yeah. We're in the same cut. Plus, and he's half human. Exactly. Yes. And that's the whole thing as well. And um, I have actually had real-life discussions about this with um, regarding Professor Canavero. He's the guy who pops up in the news every couple of years maintaining that he is one step closer to performing a successful head transplant. If you look him up, he's, he's there quite a lot. He's, he looks a little bit like Gollum, which doesn't help the whole ethos he's going for. Um, well, I can see why he wants to change his head. Well, you know, never his own. No, 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 never his own. It's always someone else's. And he was in the news a few years ago <laughs> saying he'd successfully done it. He said, in fact, his press release was boasting about the fact that... Um, and this press release was repeated a lot by people, uh, mainstream platforms, about the fact that he had performed a successful head transplant. It was meant to take, like... Probably like nine hours, he did it in four, so he was even faster than normal. And then, like, three paragraphs in, you find out that it was on cadavers, which I mean, defined successful in this in this regard. <laughs> yeah. And the whole thing was like, he kept, well, it didn't get any worse. Well, it, well exactly, yeah. we but lost the, him, yeah. But the whole the whole thing was he was um, maintaining that I, I, I this, this really good new technique for reconnecting the circulatory system. Which, all right, yeah, that would be an important part of a head transplant, but the most important part is reconnecting the spinal cord so you can actually use your head again and he always sort of skims <laughs> over that bit when asked how do you do that he goes ah oh, we have a special gel which just connects them as <laughs> if, if, 
if that genuinely, <laughs> that's, if, if that's true, you should publish what that is because that's a billion dollar invention right there. You have cured all paralysis. You have cured most neurological diseases. If you can just regrow and connect two separate types of nerves, that's not something we can do. That's unknown technology. Mm. But he kept emphasizing, oh, I, I did the circulatory system, which is, that's the neuroscience equivalent of doing a news of saying, I've created a cold fusion reactor. Okay, how does it work? Let me show you the toilets. They work really well. Okay, how about the reactor? The toilets are really complicated. <laughs> kind of, I think you're kind of omitting something here, mate. And this is this has elements of that. Is in like yes, because they they sealed all the nerve endings. That's not really the main problem here. This isn't a secondary concern. To his brain is missing. We'll have to take him with us. Take take him where? In search of his brain, doctor. Where are you going to look for Spock's brain? Yeah, so they, they, they obviously they go and find the brain and Kirk says it was taken out, it can be put back in, which given Kirk's approach in this episode isn't the best line for him to be using. Yeah. What's happened okay. Kirk? No, he's not a professional. <laughs> <laughs> Kirk's just decided. Yeah. yeah. This episode does not reflect well on Kirk at all. He is, um, you know, when I think you mentioned a few times, but those guys who like uh, these days watch Discovery and see a black uh, lady woman lead and... Uh, gay couple they say that's not my Star Trek this one this is their Star Trek because the gender <laughs> politics of this are batshit and Kirk <laughs> does not Kirk goes full MRA very quickly uh, it's not, it's yeah. really not great again another part where um, McCoy says I can't tell you how long I can keep him alive there's no guarantee and then a few seconds later if you can't find his brain within 24 hours you can forget the whole thing so you can guarantee it's less than 24 hours then so <laughs> yeah. stick, away, mate. stick with it you know <laughs> Prognosis, doctor. But what yeah. I liked is when he says his brain's gone, Kirk kind of looks at McCoy like, gone? Gone where? And then McCoy realises perhaps he should specify. He's like, yeah, I understand, Jim. <laughs> it's been surgically removed. Like, And he says it in such a way of like, oh, I need to actually explain this to you, you idiot. They do. <laughs> Kirk is very slow on the uptake in this. I think at one point he says, if I guess wrong, Mr. Spock is dead. Spock will die. Yes, yes, that, 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 yes that, that was clear from the first part, but I guess if you want to keep, keep it on. Just one more time? Okay. Mm. We have some cavemen-style guys yeah. in this episode. Now, I've got to say, whenever kind of cavemen-type people turn up in sci-fi, it's always fucking shit. Like, yeah, it's like yeah. literally yeah. like uh, the first ever Doctor Who story. But the exception of the time machine, isn't it? Wow. I mean, you know, the time machine, the film, it's it's not like classic, is it? Like the book, the book, sure. But <laughs> like, you know, like the, the film, like, you know, not... It's all right. It's all right, it's all right, it's all right. <laughs> like, but it's not Just like... Just give it a little shout for my man HG, that's all. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> my man HG. Literally, whenever, it's always very much like, Ugh, make fire. You know, it's always that, isn't it? And I just can't. Fuck, fuck <laughs> off. I want to see this. Well, they don't even make fire. They just heat a rock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically. Well, they don't know what yeah. women are, do they? That's their problem. <laughs> yeah, that's where it gets very dicey very quickly. So, I mean, luckily they've got Kirk to tell them because, I mean, you know, he's an expert on women, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So this, is, this is another reason why the incels, like, uh, you know, uh, feel so comfortable watching this show. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yes. I, I think when you say like this wasn't the lowest rated episode, it might have been the incels, the strong online community, voting this up because there are plenty of times where yeah, Kirk like, does oh, go. Make some good points. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At one point, Kirk actually says like, um, like the, the cavemen call them the the givers of pain and delights, which obviously that sounds grim. And they find the planet. It's a primitive ice age planet, but it's got a power source underneath the uh, you know underneath the ground and. It was a very advanced power source, and 
the crew of the Enterprise find this mind-boggling, even though they are an interstellar community, that they have colonies in other worlds. They know the whole concept of... It, 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 it didn't start there, but it's there now. You know that other things can come from elsewhere, but they seem to completely forget that. And Uhura is the only one who says, why do they Why do they take Spock's brain? And they all just stare at her like, good God, <laughs> what a revelation. They didn't even ask that question. <laughs> why would you yes. Why? I, I don't know. The idea of give us a pain and delight. It feels like something I'd find in a phone booth on a card. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> for a good time. Crudely drawn person holding <laughs> a whip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The part when McCoy beams down with Spock's body on like remote control, like walking around like a zombie robot. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. His, his autonomic functions are still there. You could implant something which could control his muscular system and you know, stuff. But if you're going to do that, I'd say tell the captain before you turn up. Say, you know, you, you know your best mate was on, on close to death. I've just turned him into a meat puppet. Do you mind? I'm just going to bring him down. <laughs> <laughs> you know, have some I mean, he's like manner, fucking merch in that bit, isn't he? Really <laughs> yeah. Why is he in like, workman gear? Like it's always like, oh, yeah. now you haven't got a brain. You're not smart enough to be the science officer. Yeah. Or anything. Like, I'll get you this. I'll get you some fucking overalls. Like, actually, some painted and decorated for us. Fuck. Yeah, you're a janitor now. He hasn't got a brain either. <laughs> it's just really quite, um, quite, quite un- unpleasant. You're the Starfleet yeah, but, super for now. <laughs> they find the underground community, which is very advanced. Some, you know, obviously, some other civilization put them under there, but. You know, it's all women and the men are up top and the whole gender divide thing it, it adds nothing to the plot I can see it's like you could have done it sort of like, like, like a time machine thing like advanced society and a primitive society there was no need to have they're all women and Kirk gratuitously shooting them and grabbing them and strangling them and punching them and stuff it's it's a little bit ooh you know even you know, the timer should have seemed a bit odd but again even the point of the episode is they've taken Spock's brain to replace the sort of main processor in their own computer because you know, even though it's a technological thing they need an organic brain to do that and it's never specified why they have a separate device which is super advanced enough to give people knowledge you know, so they've, got a, they've clearly got a very powerful computer right there beyond anything we know how to work but they can't build a new one they have to steal brains from passing aliens and you know, it's not again it's one of those plots where you, you examine it even at a surface level it becomes kind of like wait that doesn't make any sense why, why would that happen what, what's going on there and stuff and yeah so it, it, it doesn't hang together particularly well even on its own terms and that's sort of probably why it gets a sort of bad rap yeah it's stretched very thin isn't it like, it's kind of mm. just like you get you get these characters just going around in circles because Kurt's trying to explain so often like oh yes mm. you, no you have mm. the brain of our friend and because they don't understand what he means by brain, they're, they're saying, you know, they don't quite get it. And it's almost like they're not actually even in conflict with each other. They just don't understand. But we understand the sides of both of them. So we're just watching two groups of people basically go around in circles <laughs> yeah. for a lot of the episode. Like it, is, filler, it does feel like it. it yeah, yeah, very then, much two plots mashed together, isn't it? There's only one good line in it, which is when, uh, so they use the machine to teach McCoy how to do reverse brain surgery and put it back in. Hmm. And he just comes up from that and says, oh, a child could do it. Which is funny. Actually, I, Which I is the best line. Too, and the children, surely. <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the best line is definitely when uh, Kirk and the, the guys are beating up the guards. And Kirk delivers his classic double-handed punch to the Hulk and guard. But he's yelling, science will triumph. I'm like, yes, I'm here for this. This is, this is my job. Seems <laughs> like these are the, the rules I live by. <laughs> yeah. You can I'm definitely just, turn I'm, this episode into a drinking game as well. If you take a shot every time someone says the word Spock's brain, you're on the floor very quickly. <laughs> well, literally, for me, the best of, lines yeah. in the episode 
were all whenever Kirk says a variation of that. So there's so many times he says either, give me Spock's brain. What have you done with <laughs> Spock's brain? Where's Spock's brain? <laughs> like, I'm just cracking up every time he says a variation of that yeah. line. His brain is gone. Time left to us to find Spock's brain. Eight hours and 29 minutes. What have you done with Spock's brain? What have you done with Spock's brain? What have you done with Spock's brain? you done with Spock's brain? We do not know Spock. You have his brain. Just want to talk to somebody about Spock's brain, that's all. Brain and brain! What is brain? Bones. Scotty. Spock's brain. How does Spock's brain fit into this? Yeah, he is very odd in this, Kirk. I mean, at the, at the very end, it's a little bit of... Um, it's, it's quite uncomfortable because he says, no, yes, you can't have Spock's brain, so what are you going to do? And he says it as if like he's doing him a huge favour. What you're going to do is you're going to go up and live on the surface and evolve properly with the men. It's like, you know these men have, you know, have you know, developed to hate these women. They fear them. And also, these women have no, no chance of surviving in the Ice Age. You have essentially condemned them to a slow and painful, horrible life and then... A, short and merciless death and you seem really pleased about this it's for the good of the species I've, I've heard people use that argument and they, they don't have your best interest at heart that would not fly now you know and rightly so it's uh... it also shouldn't really fly in the prime directive like he's mm. interfering with the development of a of a, of a pre-warp civilization i think that's been on record as being like a no-no yeah i mean that, of course <clears> he does break the rules every now and again yeah, but, but like i think the original series yeah. addressed this a lot in like the prime directive is great if it's only the Federation exploring space. But again, the whole point of this one is in, someone has already been here in this one. They've already been severely interfered with. So where, you know, what's the rule in that context? Like, again, this is a part of, you can argue it's the science, but it's also about the consistency. Like you've set up your own parameters, you know, how closely you're going to stick to them. So what, what, what is the rule when you encounter a civilization which has already been interfered with by someone else and they've pissed off now? Like what, where does your responsibility end there? Yeah. Just let them die or kill themselves with this advanced yeah. tech? Well, I think or? it's it comes up a few times, actually, because there's mm. the piece of the action. And, you know, so they have done that. They play a bit fast and loose with it, yeah, I think, totally. in the past. So it's just, an, it, again, this is the thing. It just, it's a remake of, like, ideas that have been done better in series one and two. That's kind of a common theme of series three. And, I, you know, I don't think anybody should go in as this is their first episode. <laughs> I think you have to earn this mo- this episode. You <laughs> yeah. need to have yeah, gone another, through a few classics to kind of, like, one. go... Hmm. It absolutely not, because you would never watch another one. No, well, a housemate of mine was um, sat with me while I started watching this, and she hadn't seen any. And I was like, ten minutes in, I was looking up trivia about it, and I was like, oh, this is regarded as the worst ever. And yeah, she didn't make it to the end. So. No, fair <laughs> enough. That's it now. And I apologise in advance for reflecting this on you again, guys, but uh, it's it's, uh, so, it's for the greater good. <laughs> Let's wrap this up then. Dean, give us your final mm. thoughts on this from a neuroscientist <laughs> point of view. Well, the neuroscience is batshit. Let's go with that. It's not actually, none of it's possible. But there are elements on there. Like, I, sort of, I wanted to see this because like, I can I can comment on science from a neuroscientific perspective. And that's what I've gone for with the episodes we're talking about. But this is like so early days. But again, this was the 60s when we didn't really know that much about, compared to now, how, much, how the brain worked mm. in the last several decades. It has been a massive explosion in the understanding of brain and its functions and its activity and all that stuff. So it's it's not fair to expect this to be, you know, to look at this and modernise and say, oh, that's wrong, that's shit, that's bollocks, I can't, you know, I can't do that, because you, know, you, you wouldn't expect them to. We have to look at this from a different time. But 
even then, you know, there was <laughs> the idea of doing a brain transplant and or brain removal and reinsertion is. Well, they say that in, in it, that technology does not exist in the galaxy. And like, yeah, that's, that's a very valid point. It probably doesn't. <laughs> but it is, I can sort of see germs of good ideas there, as in, you know, using the brain as a computer, which is a theme which comes up a lot, you know, connecting a brain to a computer. It seems odd that they need a sophisticated brain because it seems like all Spock does in his brain chamber is run the plumbing for this community underground. So I don't know why they needed such a <laughs> powerful one in the first place. Yeah. But yeah, so like, I mean, he's the like transition ideas. Yeah, exactly. That's why he's wearing the sleeves, the overalls. He's like, well, need toilets the next 10,000 years. I'm glad I studied all that time. Grab your space mop. Come on, Spock. <laughs> space mop. I'd love that. <laughs> but yes, uh, not a good episode. Not the greatest. <laughs> Matt, what did you make of it? Uh, bad. Valid. <laughs> as I've said, it's one of those ones where. It is stretched very thin. There's not really enough in here to warrant a whole episode. It feels like there's no other secondary stakes. Like towards the the end part when it is just kind of a race against time for Bones to work out how to get the brain back into Spock. Like you know the threat is already over by then from 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 the women. No one's actively against them. It's just kind of like right, just sew this in, and I guess we'll go home. Yeah, and that's kind of the way it goes. And it does feel like a lot of the cast were on autopilot through this one. I don't know whether it was just a weird time. I know Nimoy said he didn't enjoy doing it, and yeah. I don't blame him. As well, he was just literally on autopilot, wasn't he? So. Yeah, yeah, he's just a blank slate for a lot of it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's, def- it's definitely one of the... I mean, I still haven't seen that many of the original series, maybe about a third now, and this and The Children Shall Lead definitely down there towards the bottom. <laughs> I mean, I think it's an interesting idea, like taking your smartest crew member and basically incapacitating them in this way, but... You know, you could do so much more of that. You could have the people who are the ones stealing the brain using his superior knowledge to do really nefarious things. It's become a direct threat to the Enterprise or yeah. or another planet. But, you know, imagine, like, kind of Spock weaponized for the, yeah. for the, for the baddies, basically. That's what and, I thought it was uh, going, yeah. Like, when it comes yeah. like, we just need someone to run the plumbing. Like, well... Yeah, it's a very strange uh, society of people to team up with this plot idea, definitely. Mm. So yeah, pretty rough, but it's always good to see these guys. Every time I dip back into the original series, like there's a lot of great colours. I love colours. There's some great sort of pink and purple backgrounds to these guys. Shatner does get some intense moments towards the end, even if it doesn't make a lot of sense as to why, but you know, he eventually warms up to the performance in the episode, and it's always good to see continuous ribbing between Bones and Spock, no matter how basic it may be so yeah their dynamics very much a core component of why mm. this series is so enjoyable so it's great to see bones kind of you know mccoy get mm. get that intense moment at the end as well like with his sweaty uh stress vision while he's trying to work out what to do it's uh pretty cool but yeah mm. bit of a bit of a slog oh i want to say when i got i said i got the um the book versions of all the episodes as a kid and this in the book has a slightly different ending uh in that ah. rather than like sort of Spock, like I wish I hadn't reconnected your mouth or something, and he just won't stop talking. There's a there's a scene where there's a bit where like Spock smiles, and um, Bone says, "Spock, is that a smile? I've never seen that before." And he says, "Unfortunately, Doctor, I was attempted to sneeze." And uh, it's sort of like a really that's, that's quite a strong joke to end on. <laughs> so sort <of> like, <laughs> so this is all Spock's brain novelization that you wrote. But it was it was it was a full third series I had. I think you, you're out of the room when you um, I my parents got off me, and I've. I think I've seen episodes of the third series that I've never seen this, but I know what happens. How does that work? And then, oh yeah, they got me a book of <laughs> chapter sort of like, one. Sort of like, box right? Yeah, sort of, sort of like Wikipedia summaries of every episode, but very detailed ones. That's what it essentially was. So you were waiting this whole episode for that smiling, sneezing joke, yeah, and then it I was. got stolen. <laughs> 
Yeah. I mean, that's why I was so disenchanted. Was, oh, what the hell? You're taking the best joke out of it. <laughs> yeah. Plus, it adds a little bit of like, did we do it? Yeah, properly? exactly. Because like, actually, his brain is malfunctioning. Yeah. Like, have we broken him? Yeah. Like, maybe that's why they took it out, perhaps, or maybe the book just changed it. They thought that that last gag doesn't yeah. work on them. Um, on, on the page well, or, yeah, yeah brain damage is no laughing matter no, <laughs> no laughing grey matter that's one part of the damage ah. <laughs> Paul I feel like you might defend this maybe no 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 I haven't got anything to defend it I just said it's not as bad <laughs> as, as other episodes because I have watched all of them and I was you know dreading of course this one as a, you know it's heralded as the worst and yeah, what a way to kick it off. And there's some seriously dodgy episodes in the in the first bit of season three. But it wasn't as bad as it... I suppose it's because I had a little gap between seasons. I was just ready for some more seeing the characters. But I was like, it starts stronger than it... it but the second half is just... It goes nowhere at all. I love Matt's uh, idea of like, you know, how to rewrite this and actually do something with that premise. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I don't think it's the worst one I've seen. Definitely not. I don't think it's as bad as And the Children Shall Lead. Uh, it is at least... Uh, I kind of found it enjoyable in a silly way and it has got a kind of promising... I think the opening was really good with the mysterious woman and kind of taking everyone out mm. instantly. And like like Matt says, it colours like the the original series always looks gorgeous because it's in like full HD like TNG and everything like that and it looks fucking great and it, all that kind of pop art style kind of colouring is, is really nice and Kirk's so funny and I mean it's just it's I, I think it's so wackadoo that I'm kind of like <coughs> into it you know in a sort of way but uh, yeah it's uh it's it's not it's not great and certainly it signals right from the outset that season three is not going to be quite mm. the same show as the other two <laughs> yeah. seasons, I think. So, yeah. It feels so. like it could have been one of those comic book storylines instead, right? Like, I think we said that before recently. Of, yes. Uh, this yeah. feels more like this would have been squeezed in amongst those giant plant monster ones, you know. Yeah. Well, you the, can you imagine, imagine the, the front cover. cover. Yeah, yeah with, mm. with McCoy literally going, his brain's gone! Like, uh, like <laughs> just like spots <laughs> yeah. down, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, very, it's, very but, uh, yeah. it's very sort of you know very classic B movie stuff could come from this like yeah yes. stealers of the yeah, brain yeah. and uh, that's it's not yeah, high well, concept yeah, in that brain respect. of Morbius yeah. yeah 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 completely very very much so mm. right okay so the second episode we're going to talk about today on the size of Trek is the M degree this is from Star Trek the Next Generation season four episode nineteen. Uh, first broadcast on the 30th of March, 1991. Written by Joe Menosky, uh, who's a big guy when it comes to uh, TNG. He was one of the script editors and story consultants over the show. Um, so he had a kind of hand in, in tons of episodes in Next Generation. He also wrote four episodes of DS9 and had a hand in a ton of episodes of Voyager as well. Actually co-wrote Future's End, Scorpion, Year of Hell, and The Dark Frontier two-parters. So he's a big, big Star Trek guy. So much so that he is one of the few old-school writers they brought back for Star Trek Discovery. He's actually written an episode of Star Trek Discovery in the first season. So, you know, that's, that's an accolade that they got him out of retirement to do that. And he also is one of the uh, Star Trek guys who they brought back to write an episode of The Orville of course, as well. Uh, directed by Robert Legato, 
who directed a couple of episodes of TNG, one episode of DS9, but he is mostly famous for being a visual effects supervisor, uh, not only on Next Generation DS9, but also on loads of big movies like Apollo 13, Titanic, Armageddon. That's what he's most famous for, very much with this. So, M degree uh this is the return of barclay who of course we met in earlier episode of tng where he's the guy who's kind of obsessed with the holodeck and is doing all kinds of weird things in there and this is kind of i believe probably probably the second episode where he takes center stage is that is that i was right? gonna, I was gonna ask you guys about that because i swear this is the first time i've come across this guy so at the beginning scene with enterprise theater and they're putting on a play obviously he's in prosthetics and i was thinking who is this and then when he comes out of his uh, his costume i was like who is this <laughs> i still don't know so i must have missed the first appearance of him but because yeah. it seems like he's a recurring kind of tertiary crew member right yeah, he's like again, a yeah. lower yes. crew member essentially, mm. but we have met him before in an episode of TG. He is the one I think we have spoken about him in passing on this podcast. Right. Yeah, because he comes up in uh, first contact, he makes a, a reappearance. Yeah, the first contact, the um, your cost uh, from Cochrane demanding to shake his hand and saying how much he loves him. He's um, ah, yeah, and then before this, he he has a problem that he's essentially addicted to the holodeck and he has fantasies about the, the senior the senior crew and interacting with them and Riker's really short and it which I think is a nice gag because they say you're you are really tall it's quite intimidating <laughs> it's um, <laughs> I really like, like like that bit but um I can't remember that episode's called but I remember sort of thinking that, that's not a bad one but it's I find Barkley a really reassuring character because like I say I watched Star Trek as a, as a kid and um, got, really got, in, got really into it and it's really it was inspiring it's influential in that you know, this is like people doing pretty cool things exploring stuff but i do appreciate the, the common criticism that a lot of the characters are not so much robotic but they're really sort of stiff and aloof like they all seem like very superior they're always listening to classical music and drinking earl grey tea and like when you're a working class valley boy that's not you can't really relate to that and barclay comes along like oh this guy is a misfit you know he is part of this world but he's not in sync with it he's not like mm. He's not noble. He's not also like, I'm very good at what I do and I'm very confident and I shall stride forth and represent humanity. He's like awkward, he's shambling, doesn't know how to interact with people. Which, again, from the science perspective, a lot of scientists are like that. You know, it's not a stereotype, but you know, you're talking about sort of mindset of people who are very analytical, very, you know, focused on their work. They don't, you know, socialising isn't really one of their strong suits a lot of the time. You know, it's oh, plenty are, obviously, uh, but that stereotype has some basis in truth, you know, and as a as a scientist, you have to say that and say there's evidence for this. So even to introduce this guy, say this guy is part of this world and everyone accepts him, you know, except when he's making, I'm not going to say sex puppets, but I'm pretty sure that was happening off camera of them <laughs> on the holodeck. But, you know, that, that's bad. He shouldn't do that. But he was a sort of an interesting character in that, oh, yeah, he's, he's neurotic. He is anxious. He doesn't know what to do. He is nervous. This is all stuff, you know, if you put me on a starship like this and <laughs> I, I, I'm like... Shit! What do I do now? <laughs> this is very cool, but I do not belong here. This is you know, like very, very galaxy quest in that respect. You know, when they're familiar with that world, but they don't actually want to. You know, the reality is much different to the. And you know, I think I found him a very interesting character in that respect. Because yes, there will be. You know, if order of humanity is here in this world, more than, because um, although except a personal bugbear, how many series of Star Trek have been now? Like seven or something, and all these films. I don't yeah, think the Welsh I've ever been referenced yet, let alone appeared. We might be extinct <laughs> in this timeline. 
<laughs> me, me, and, me and Dan Thomas talked about this, and he's seen on every episode, as you know. The only, the closest we can come to acknowledgement of the Welsh in Star Trek is the Future Armor episode, <laughs> where no fan has gone before, where they have Welsh. Welsh. Yeah. <laughs> Welsh. <laughs> <laughs> that is literally all we've got. I think we might be extinct at this time now. We might have been a victim of World War Three, but you know. But uh, we'll see. Maybe, maybe we could be resurrected in some future yeah. point. I have... Even in that, he gets zapped to death. So <laughs> exactly, yeah, he's the first one to die in that. Well. So... <laughs> he was the last one. But, uh, so, so, yeah. so, what is it um, about this episode that made you pick it to chat about today? It's another brain episode, uh, which mm. I'm, obviously I really quite liked, and it's sort of or even like a similar theme to Spock's brain in that Barkley is uh, being brought along with the Forge to help sort of boost his confidence because everyone's sort of, maybe they pity him, but they, they, in, in a nice way. They're trying, to, they're trying to boost his confidence and stuff, trying to support in him. In a nice way. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're definitely they're very superior. They're the sort of people who would do that. Just, oh, let's throw him a bone. <laughs> and so he ends up going over to the forge to investigate this weird probe, which is bothering one of their arrays, and it uh, zaps the shuttle. Barclay's knocked out. And after that, he becomes increasingly intelligent, uh, super, super intelligent, very advanced, really high-concept stuff. He starts outwitting the forge and data in many ways, and then ends up sort of because the computer can't control this array they're trying to fix, he replaces the main computer core with his own brain and ends up transporting them to some deep realm of space uh, where the people who actually did this to him appear and they all become friends and it's all fixed in the end. Happy days. So that's essentially what happens here. But it's all about you know, how what, what are the capabilities of the human brain? How would you advance it? And could you put someone's brain in place of a computer? And this is essentially the next-gen version of Spock's brain. Aliens did it. A brain replaces the computer, but mm. a lot more successfully and a lot more. I feel like this one, this one is a lot more to it than Spock's brain is. You know, the concept is quite cool well, and interesting, and it's done better. I think they they do a bit to sort of help that along when Doctor Crusher talks about what the connections in his brain that are now being the bits of the brain are talking to each other mm. that weren't before the connections, and she references <coughs> certain like lobes and. Uh, yeah. Sort of sections no, that, that uh, you know that was actually good neuroscience i'll say that you said your trans- neurotransmitters are being overproduced by 500 percent, which would be indicative of a brain which is far more active than a standard one your hemispheres uh the corpus callosum which connects the two the thickness of that is usually a decent indicator of how intelligent you are the thicker it is the more white matter which connects the two halves of your brain which can sort of operate independently. There's a procedure called the corpus callosotomy. It takes 10 years of practice to say that the first time, and I still haven't quite got it. But, um, <coughs> that's where they sever the bridge between the two hemispheres of your brain. It's, it's the thing which stops, like, serious epilepsy or other things. And, you, you know, it's, it's, it's fine in terms of you don't sort of, you know, experience too many ill effects, but it does essentially give you two quasi-independent brains. You can have two sides of your body operating on different wavelengths, and they explore this in-house uh, as well, the Hugh Laurie show, and it's not... They are still connected in many other ways, but yeah, it's, they don't talk as much, and therefore you have two different sides, so you lose some redundancy. So it's a thing that can happen, and the thicker it is, the better your hearts communicate, and therefore the smarter you can tend to be because the sides of your brain are communicating better. So if that, they said that in, in his brain, they've essentially merged completely, so he has a far more cohesive thing, which would be indicative of a more efficient brain. So there is some actually good... You know, there's some good groundwork done here. This actually does make sense. Would that make your human brain more powerful than the main computer of a starship 400 years advanced from now? No, no, it would not. It wouldn't make it faster anyway. That's not, <laughs> that isn't how brains work. It does fall in the trap of the brain is like a computer. It's not in so many ways, but that is like the only benchmark we have in the wider world of what mm. a brain you know, It's a thing which is complicated and handles information and creates things and manipulates stuff. Yes, so does the brain. But no, anyway, it's more of a general functional similarity than how it actually operates. 
And there's also a bit, I think, I think they missed a trick with, the brain is actually a really, really advanced organ. Like it's in terms of, it's demanding. It's really demanding. It uses like a third, a third of the body's energy just by existing. Just by sitting there, staying alive, uses a third of our ready fuel supplies in the body. So his brain is like operating at 500% efficiency. They should, they could have had a skip where he's constantly drinking energy drinks like and just knock, knocking back Coke and stuff just to keep it going. <laughs> Every scene he's got ice cream just shoveling down his face. That would have been a lovely visual gag, which would have made perfect sense. There's plenty to poke holes in in this concept. Like why is Barclay's brain so easily manipulated to make it so powerful when they couldn't operate a compatible technology or they couldn't operate the computer core? It's, that's more, it's not so much like that's ridiculous. Like, well, that's where you have to spend disbelief. Like we're talking yeah. super advanced. I think advanced at a certain degree, there's always going to yeah. be a point of, oh, because TV. And yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's bridging that gap between what you need to suspend your disbelief for, for the episode's own rules to work versus... Yeah, what they the need thing. to bend yeah. just to get there. I guess mm. it's picking your battles, really, and I think I guess that's always the balance between fact well, and fiction. I guess in sci-fi also, terms, this super intelligence plot it is a kind of become a bit of a trope of fiction, isn't it? It's something they come back to mm. again and again. It's that short story, isn't it? Flowers for Algaron, yeah, uh, which yeah. has been done to death in all these different. <laughs> of course, they even do it in Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Sun in Philadelphia, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Lovely. Like, right yeah, it's always it's, this kind of, you know, intelligence corrupts kind of thing, isn't it? Or it's, you know, gradually well, I, like the human I think, mind well, can't Star take Trek, it. well, did it in a, a very early episode, I think, isn't it, Where No Man Has Gone Before? Yeah, yeah. It's that. And you have Gary. Yes. Oh, that's like my favourite episode of the original series because I genuinely really enjoyed like, how they react. Oh. Like, they are making some serious decisions about, like, he is going to be too dangerous if we let him continually to exponentially get smarter. And I love that they had that like, leap into like, telekinesis as well. Like as is, as he gets more smarter, he becomes <laughs> to manipulate yeah. things. And, you get so uh, smart, like, you can oh, God, violate he's, physics. He's terrifying, and he can I can he magic up my grave and spell my name wrong. Uh, yeah, you're, you're totally right, Paul. That's what I was expecting in this episode as well, because that's what it reminded me of as well. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah. he's getting exponentially but, more powerful. At what point are they going to be able to stop him? Like before he just becomes. Yeah, God. It doesn't go into those darker areas no. of like we are literally keeping him sedated. And but then in that in that original episode where he knows what they're doing, and it's like, yeah, I'd, I'd be scared of me too. You know, that's why I love that episode. But yeah, here's here's like a more of a kind of like family friendly version of that. Mm. Like you know, it's it becomes like a gag that he's voice of the computer and Picard telling him, to, no, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> well, next gen, I think it's a hallmark of this show in particular. I think is that they're doing buzz meetings. Yeah. in the conference room i don't know how long they've been sitting there before the scene starts but they seem to wrap up with an amazing plan in 45 seconds flat <laughs> every single time okay three sections let's do it make it done. and uh, yeah. uh it, it doesn't require any detail Picard before he just like nods it goes sounds good let's do it and uh, yeah he trusts his people and i think they're, they're wonder they are so unapproachable because they're absolute big dick energy like of these guys uh yeah it's yeah, they're well off the charts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's no, there's no openings. I mean, they're all young enough that I don't see any of the retiring types. So it's like Barclay's looking at that, going, "Where the fuck am I going to get my looking?" <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> like Riker yeah, will exactly. never take that captaincy, so he'll <laughs> be number it one forever. Reminds me of but when it, I first arrived in Brighton, and I went into Dave's Comics and said, "Oh, any any jobs going?" Because I thought, you know, this would be perfect for me working in a great comic book shop. The guy who worked there turned around to me and went. Well, unless one of us dies, no. I was just like, oh, <laughs> right. So was, like the Barclay yeah. of Days Comics. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I mean, but this is about Barclay's mental health, isn't it? 
like you know in part of his recovery because mm. I know you say you haven't seen the first episode he appears in that but yeah as, mm. as Dean said he's kind of you know addicted to the holodeck which is obviously very dangerous for him um, you know because it's kind yeah, of read porn addiction yeah yeah it's like yeah it's like porn addiction he's kind of warping his <clears> perception <throat> of reality there's definitely a, a lot of his cum lying around the holodeck at the end of the day oh, uh, this is kind of about <laughs> him try and recover and he obviously has some major social issues you know social anxiety insecurity but i think what is nice is that he's not been written off by the rest of the crew there is a way mm. back for him much as they might find him a bit annoying at times because he's not as perfect as the rest of them but it's that mm. thing of yeah. last time he was creating fantasies for himself where he was very much recognized as the hero of the situation it was kind of like that episode of uh, buffy superstar where uh, jonathan one of the nerds like makes himself the whole hero of the show and they're all constantly praising and worshiping him and now all the people who were super like you say like Riker and stuff are made to look a bit silly and so in comparison whereas now he essentially gets the power that he so desperately wanted but it's kind of like it's it's kind of too much for him I think that's where the subplot here really works in its favour because at first I was like oh what's this goofy theatre mm. stuff like at first I was like assuming they were in the holodeck then you see the audience it's like oh they have a stage on this ship like what don't they have but like well, that's just a very simple way of showing here he is being nervous and anxious and then here he is like nailing you know that monologue later on and it's just a quick shorthand <coughs> to show how he's changing socially as well as intellectually and everything else. Drama therapy is a real thing, isn't it? Like it's it's a way of sort of you know expressing your inner angst, turmoil, neurosis, whatever you call it, in a quote unquote safe space. In that, mm. I'm expressing what I want to express, but it's not me doing it. So yeah, therefore, being someone else. It's sort of like yeah, it's a subversion of you know, it's like it's like tricking your own brain into I want to get this out there, but it's okay. It's not me doing it. So you're sort of sidestepping your mental blocks and things like that. I, I do think that's a really good thing to have. I, mean, I don't think t- Next Gen gets enough credit for the fact... I know we have to say, like, in the first series, like, Deanna Troy, like, what, what is her purpose? This is ridiculous. She has nothing to do. But we have, like, this is the flagship of the Federation, and the ship's counsellor is one of the senior staff. I mean, this is an organisation which really does take mental health seriously, and that's really quite cool. And you know, especially at the time, we're talking about the 80s that started off, and even now, like, you get some companies say, we prioritise employee well-being, which means we'll give you a pamphlet if you're stressed, and then if you're still stressed, then you're sacked. And that's not really quite <laughs> as helpful, you know. <laughs> it's all lip service, whereas this one, the Federation clearly takes it seriously, and as they do here. But I will say that it's kind of undercut because I think the opening scene is, in concept, very good. But I think it it means the episode kind of peaks a bit too early because the best part of the episode is, I think, Brent Spiner's expressions watching <laughs> yeah, Barkley his reactions doing are this amazing. rather subpar monologue. <laughs> it's like constantly doing these tricky <laughs> facial <laughs> things. Just looking around like, like, I can <laughs> do it better. Oh, also, like... <laughs> The longest pre-title sequence of all yeah, time. It's really as well. long. I was, they really it was about out. eight, nine minutes yeah. before they actually get the main titles. And I did, I did play the game, which is uh, I saw on uh, Twitter where you try and sync up saying space <laughs> uh, at the exact time Picard says it. I got it bang on <laughs> on first take. I'll have everybody know my Star Trek credentials are well intact. Uh, but there's there's a funny video out you there. You sent us the video of this, Paul. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Thank you. Yeah. But again, that, 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 again, that itself is scientifically interesting because <clears throat> it's actually something I'm writing about right now in one of my books, and I've actually talked about this, and I've actually talked to Brent oh, Spiner about this. So it's been a it's been a, a convoluted story. But uh, you know, the whole thing of emotions in Data doesn't have emotions. That's its main sort of 
character trait throughout much of next gen. He wants to have emotions, but he doesn't quite. So the question is, from a scientific perspective, why is he making those facial expressions if he doesn't have emotions? Because those are signs of confusion, you know, sort of disapproval, maybe annoyance. You know, he's doing all those things that maybe he's learned those by observing, but you know, facial expressions and emotions are really heavily linked in the literature. To, to what extent, that's very hotly debated. And I actually talked about this, Data is actually a common reference in the field of emotion research because he's such an iconic character who doesn't have them. And Spock's a Vulcan, he does have them, but he suppresses them, it's a whole different thing. But I talked to Dr. Richard Firth Godby here, who is a historian of emotions. And one of the things he asks is, how would Data choose a flavor of ice cream if he has no emotions? Like, they're all exactly the same to him. They're just a cold confection. Can he even taste? Like, he has no reason to choose one over the other. So it would be like a logic problem. And there's no merit to any one of these. Like, I have no reason to choose one because I have no emotional instinctive reaction to any of these things. But he does in this scene because he's actually watching Barkley and going, this is shit <laughs> well he's not, he's not saying that verbally but he clearly his expression is saying that so again if you look in the literature it opens up a whole data is a very interesting phenomenon of emotions and psychology and sort of throw that in there because it's a science themed episode yeah that's fascinating <laughs> right let's uh, get to final thoughts on this episode dean kick us off i like this episode as a kid i watched it and i liked it and the neuroscience is technically fine uh, the idea that a human brain could replace the you know, the main massive computer core of a centuries-advanced starship it does seem far-fetched, you know, they work, but with the caveat of, ah, it's been advanced by an alien probe, so God knows what they're capable of. It's completely, utterly, you know, they're clearly well beyond the Federation, so maybe it is possible. I guess my main concern in the episode is the, like you said, the very trusting, like Picard says, okay, I agree, I agree, maybe it's this ship or maybe the Federation general, they're very trusting, and so is the computer. They just tell it to do something and it'll do it. Like, Barclay can hack the computer from the holodeck, which seems like a bad design flaw in terms of security. Like, I can't delete a Word document without my computer checking twice. <laughs> like, are you sure? Are you sure you want to do that? Like, Barclay says, I'm going to take over the computer. Just build it here. And like, all right. But that seems like seems like sort of hacking your your, your, your laptop from the, from the Solitaire game, which seems a bit odd. But but that's, that's, that's by the by. He's super intelligent. It, it does end up being quite res- resolved quite neatly in that, you know, Barclay just walks out of the table lift when the giant floating head appears yeah so I, I like this episode in that it's it shows progress from spock's brain to this it does show like a better understanding of how brains can slash should slash would work in these contexts it does show a sort of better appreciation of how people work how they you know they improve and stuff and i think it just shows a good progress from the original series to the next gen in terms of science in terms of how this sort of stuff would work and yeah and that's why i like it and also like barclay is an interest they could have done this with a regular character. It could have been Riker. It could have, could have been Geordie. You know, the, the fact that it was Barkley was, um, I think, a, a good choice on their part. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's, an, it's, it's definitely an interesting point of view. Paul? I've never, as a kid, was particularly enamoured by Barkley. I just didn't enjoy the what spent with time because I just was a secondary character. Like, I I didn't want to away from the crew I really liked, but I think I appreciate it more now in a bit older. I, had, I haven't seen this episode in 25 years. So uh, it was quite fun to see it again. Um, and I remember very vividly, like the Batman Forever sort of like Edward Digma machine in the holodeck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it looked a bit like that. I thought uh, that was a good effect. I thought that was, that was well I done. Think, yeah, I think it's like about to play, or it's about to play who wants to be the millionaire or something. <laughs> uh, and I remember that it, it being quite, had a sense of humour about it this episode. And I think ultimately the payoff when you get the, you know, the ghost of Christmas present turn up at the end. <laughs> wasn't as quite as exciting as like the, everything led up to be it also was i think these the bergerac 
kind of like uh, bookends. I, I I just I find it like really cringeworthy sometimes that stuff. Mm. So for me, that wasn't my my particular flavor of Star Trek: Next Generation. But like overall, yeah, the episode is so well put together, so well acted, so well shot. Like it's just a classy affair, isn't it? Watching Next Gen, it's such a slick product, mm. and it just was nice to be be in there again. Awesome, Matthew. I, I quite like episodes that take the spotlight away from your Picard and your Rikers, really, where they're still present. They're still kind of in the episode, but like we say, just kind of doing that more of their day to day. Just going from room to room, approving plans and seeing how things are going and, and shifting the focus down into the, the lower crew. And for me, with this being my first time experiencing <coughs> Barkley as a character, I think I uh, agree with you guys that he's he's a great one to bring back into the fold for this because it means you can have people like LaForge be sort of more of a shepherd for him and to help him out. There's some really great dramatic dynamics there. As Barclay's beginning to rise in his intelligence and he's kind of stepping on the Forge's shoes and you can feel a bit of tension there, which probably is never really present before. You don't really get, as we've said, a lot of the intercrew tension in terms of like rank or, or pulling rank or authority, but Barclay's on, on the rise there and, and putting LaForge down, even though he's he's super cool with it. Um, <laughs> and yeah, the ending, it, it may be quite anticlimactic in many ways, but it's quite cool in that Star Trek way of like, it's not going the way you think. And, uh, you know, they are pretty screwed on, unless Barclay pulls through, which he does. And yeah, there's a lot of good knowing knowing nods in this. Like, I like hearing him give the I'm afraid I can't do that 2001 <laughs> style line. And just the attitude he has as, as he's as he's hooking himself into the computer and says, like, and the computer's like, you know, oh, I, I don't know how to do that. Basically, it's like, don't worry, I'll tell you how to yeah, build it. Here's how you build it. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's a very interesting Clip flip patience. side to that original series episode, which, you know, had Gary going a bit all megalomaniac. Whereas in here, it's very much this is how it probably would unfold with a next gen character. So it's good to see it flipped. It'd be good to see episodes of this ilk kind of reflected in every series of Star Trek and to see how each series and characters reinterprets these kind of ideas because you know it's very much like that episode and as Dean said Spock's brain as well. For me I prefer the first Barclay episode I think that's a bit more interesting this which is kind of uh, because certainly at the time I actually think the idea of him becoming a ditch holodeck and stuff like that was actually quite a new idea and seemed quite fresh whereas this like I say, it's the you know it's the flowers for Algoron thing. It's like it's something that's a trope that's been done lots and lots of times, and they just clearly thought it, it feels more like they thought, oh, Barkley's a character we can use for that quite well, rather than a kind of organic thing. But it is it is interesting to bring him back. I was kind of glad he didn't go off the rails, just because I was like, well, they should they surely couldn't forgive him again if he kind of completely fucked it up all over again. But it was interesting. I completely agree about the Batman Forever reference. I thought that exactly as well. Just imagine Jim Carrey. It's like, <laughs> like yeah, they're absolutely hilarious. But I think, I, you know, if I had a choice, I would watch Flowers for Charlie from Always Sunny every time instead. A simple pill ingested by a man who received a simple idea, a simple thought, so clear and sharp that it cut through his mind like a soft cheese and led him to an invention. Is he doing an accent? Yeah. Every now and then, there are new modalities, new ways of being and understanding our world. This invention, my invention, will change everything. For the better, one hopes. But the good of the scorpion is not the good of the frog, yes? 
<laughs> you must excuse me. I've grown quite weary. We, we move on <laughs> to the last episode we're going to discuss tonight, and this is the one I've been really excited to talk about. Hard Time from Star Trek Deep Space mm. Nine, Season 4, Episode 18, first broadcast on the 15th of April 1996, written by Robert Hewitt Wolf, who wrote one episode of Star Trek Next Generation, Fistful of Datas, uh, but he was a story editor on DS9, uh, so he had his hands in, in dozens of episodes of DS9. Uh, he was also one of the creators of Andromeda, which of course was based oh, on an idea by Gene Roddenberry, but it was made after his yeah. death. Did anyone ever watch Andromeda? Yeah, no. Kevin Sorbo, Hercules. Yeah. The, uh, the captain, they made, they made, they made reference to that, because uh, when he first appears, he attacks the guy and he said, oh my God, this guy, he's a bit like a Greek god or something. I, said, oh, I see what he did there. I see what he did. Yeah, yeah I watched the, Was it good? It was all right. It was, um, it, it got quite confusing quite quickly. Like it became sort of, it became very quickly mired in its own mythology, which I sense. And then I heard Kevin right. Sobo took over behind the cameras and it all became, it became like the TV sci-fi equivalent of him just flexing the mirror a lot. Because um, I think he, he, he quickly got overshadowed by Xena in the Hercules show, didn't he? And then he wanted to do something to stake his claim and it didn't quite pan out. But yeah, it was, it was quite well done, I thought. It was um, a bit more loose than Star Trek. But yeah, not bad, not bad. Oh, interesting, interesting. I, I always get confused with Farscape, which I think landed about the same time. Yeah, yes. Farscape. Farscape. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, there were a lot of those kind of shows around that time, <coughs> uh, let's face it. And directed by Alexander Singer, who directed six episodes of Star Trek Next Generation, including Ship in a Bottle, which I believe is a quite, quite a classic episode, mm-hmm. along with six episodes of DS9 and ten of Voyager, including Threshold, uh, which of course yeah. was featured on How the Trekkers <laughs> Get Mad. Threshold. Uh, yeah, not... I'll defend Threshold, I'll swear. I will. After this, I will. Trust me. Yeah. <laughs> will, you, will you defend Threshold, Dean? I will, I will after this. Trust me, I, I'm, I'm happy oh, to. Wow. <laughs> okay, Scientifically, okay. not 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 for. No, it's, 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 <laughs> but it's, not it's, as an stupid. episode of enjoyable television. <laughs> 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 the science is sound, the script is not. Alexander Singer also directed an episode of the Shaft TV show, which I didn't even know existed, which actually yeah, had Richard Roundtree in it. I'm like only ran for seven episodes, but I had no idea that uh-huh. existed. So that's a discovery that's uh, from that's, this. That's incredible. Uh, has anyone got a plot synopsis, Matt? Yes, yeah, so this one sees Chief O'Brien uh, unjustly convicted of espionage uh, on the planet Ar- uh, Argartha. Um, and so instead of locking people up over there, they implant you with memories of years of imprisonment instead, which takes only a few hours of real time so by the time he's pulled out of this he spent 20 years in prison in his brain essentially and then the rest of the episode is kind of like a you know PTSD drama of O'Brien trying to adjust to real life again uh, a world in which he's only been away for a few hours basically but in his mind it's been 20 plus years and so it's kind of his his journey back to normality, and he's plagued by visions of another cellmate who he apparently spent time with. Yeah, he's not letting his crewmates know existed for some mm-hmm. reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I-, I thought this was a fucking fascinating concept straight away. Reminded me of Heaven Sent from Doctor Who, which is a got to classic, uh, with this idea of imagined time of imprisonment. And uh, yeah, I mean, Cole Meany that they. they 
gave him, I mean, obviously, Cole Meany's he's a, a great actor, and they really gave him something to get his teeth into here, because straight away, when he's kind of pulled out of this fantasy uh, of being in prison for all that time, he looks completely shot away, more vulnerable than we've ever seen him before. When he first is reunited with Bashir, he looks like he's desperate to hug him, or just burst into tears, uh, and, you know, obviously, you know, this is tackling... PTSD quite ahead of its time really in the kind of mid-90s I thought. Mm, absolutely, hence my appreciation for the episode. <laughs> it's sort of very much in my wheelhouse. So my reason for picking this one, uh, multiple reasons. Uh, first off, it's a DS9 episode and I'm with Dan Thomas. I say DS9 is the best Star Trek series. I am happily, I'll have to go on record as saying that. It's a more relatable series. It, you know, there's a lot more going on, which is intriguing. All the characters are great. Um, like Dan, I met um, Robert Picardo at that convention, but also uh, Nana Visitor was there. She's a uh, major Kira, was on, on stage. She's actually at the time pregnant with uh, Alexander Siddick's child, and he came on stage and I shut her off because she was taking too long. Got her autograph to which she is absolutely tiny. She's about three foot tall. I'm sure she is. She's really, really small. Didn't think that because the character is so powerful, so immense, and therefore... She's a great actor, and that's 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 how that works. The show, which actually gave Worf a chance to be who he's meant to be, like he's always a geek and a nerd and a dweeb on Next Gen. Uh, his first episode on Deep Space Nine, he gets roaring drunk with an old friend. He beats the shit out of a general Sanders to get his attention, and he tells the Chancellor to piss off. That makes up a lot of time, mate. That's well done. <laughs> and my two favourite Star Trek moments are in Deep Space Nine. One is in Purgatory Shadow when uh, Worf has gone off with Garrick into the Gamma Quadrant in a runabout to find Garrick's old mentor who has been captured by Dominion. And Cisco just comes to see them off. What about Garrick? I want him back too. I suppose I don't have to tell you to keep a close eye on him. At the first sign of betrayal, I will kill him, but I promise to return the body intact. I assume that's a joke. We will see. <laughs> it's like, that really caught me. And another line from Rocks and Shoals, the season six episode where the crew have a captured Dominion ship. They go to a, a weapons depot, blow it up, they get chased, get shot down, crash on an enemy planet behind uh, enemy lines, no way home, and they, they wash up at the shore. And O'Brien goes, Oh no. What? I don't believe it. What? I tore my pants. You tore your pants. Yeah, I tore my pants. <laughs> I guess, I guess I'm really in trouble now, huh? That's the first time I thought, oh, they get it. They are humans. This is like that's exactly what they're doing yeah. here. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. I love it. I love O'Brien for that as well because. Again, like I said, the whole aloof characters, they're all kind of stiff, kind of superior. O'Brien was the first guy I thought, you know what, I could walk into any pub in this country and a guy like that would just be sat there. I'm going to stout. Just like, just like, all right, yeah. It, yeah. That's someone like us there. Like he's, he's a genius engineer. He's brilliant. But he's also such a human character, such a mm. modern-day human character. And and I love that. But this episode is, I think I've looked up one of the many episodes where they decide, every series they decide to torture O'Brien because he's, <laughs> he's, he's such a likeable, relatable character. It makes it far more impactful. You know, his, his wife gets possessed by demons. He gets uh, sentenced to death on Cardassia. It's, it's a weird episode for that. But this one I really like for the exact reason you say. It's, um, you know, it shows PTSD. It's the real life consequences of it. And for a start, it's the same idea as the inner light. That, you know, the... 
infamous, not infamous, it's well celebrated Star Trek Next Gen episode where Picard gets given 40 years of memories by an alien probe. Now, I prefer this one to that one. I know, like, you know, like, is like a, a flagship episode for many people, but yes, it's a brilliant story. Yes, it's a very, very. You, know, you tell it, they shove its flute where the sun is shining. But <laughs> I will say, like, that bothers me as well. Is, is Picard playing that same flute, or do you have one replicated? Because if he is. That is the sole surviving artifact from a dead culture that's been gone for a thousand years. Don't spit on it, mate. It belongs in a museum. <laughs> yeah, don't piss a over it, mate. You're supposed to be good at this sort of stuff. You know, don't just gob all over it. Fucking hell, Picard. Yeah, but in that, in that one, like, he goes through 40 years of... I mean, scientifically, you say, okay, how this culture, they don't know how to escape their planet. They have no technology to get off the world but they do have the technology to make a probe which can overpower superior alien technology, spaceship, and implant memories in the mind of a species they have never seen before. So they can do that, but they can't build a spaceship. All right, that seems a little bit... <laughs> this one's a lot more consistent in that regard, in that you know, this species, which is quite dogmatic, quite clearly quite uh, fanatical and quite um, fascistic, will give O'Brien this experience of 20 years in prison, and uh, which would be very traumatic. That's all punked, of course, if you're not... We keep incarcerated, it's all about punishment. And I re- what I really liked, at the time I didn't like it, but now that I'm a neuroscientist, I really like it, is that, so we'll get him home, and Bashir says, we'll get to work on removing the memories straight away. And you think, of course, he's got a bundle of memories in there, they're going to just pluck that out eventually when they find out how, and he'll be cured. And they don't. Bashir says they didn't actually implant memories, they ran you through a compressed time simulation, so you live them, as far as your brain is concerned, in real time, so those memories can't be removed which is exactly how it works. Memory engrams, like, it's not about sort of like big lumps of data. It's a fluid, organic system. It's, it's like, trying, like you're trying to take out memories. It's like trying to unfry an egg. You can't. Mm. Look, that egg is fundamentally altered now. I know yeah, we have to transport, you transport technology, you can rearrange stuff, but in terms of how the brain works, you can't do that. You can't pin down certain memories of certain isolated things and then remove them to, to prevent them. And I know there's films about that, but it's not how it works. This is, episode is so consistent in that regard. Like, you cannot do that. You have to learn to live with these memories now. And I think that's such a powerful thing. In terms of, you know, this is the future, everything's better now, but bad stuff still happens. And like with most mental health problems, there's no cure, there's no fix. It's about adapting, about coping, about reconciling it with who you are, and it becomes a part of you. And I know this episode does that so well, especially the whole like you know he's hallucinating his old cellmate for, as it turns out, good reasons. And you can argue that the hallucinations are very sort of clear and concise and very, but that's how TV works. You know, like everyone has a dream in TV. It's, it's never like an actual dream, which is utterly insane and upside down and you know, doesn't obey any laws of physics. You can't do that. You can't portray mm. that effectively. But this is a such a good portrayal of mental health, about the, the, the repercussions of trauma, about having to live with it. You can't just delete these memories. They are with you now. They, your brain avoids this counsellor. They have a counsellor. They say, why are you avoiding the session? That, that happens. That's a real thing. It's such an authentic and good portrayal of the repercussions mm. of trauma. Uh, for a character we all we all love and know. And um, like, he, I, I looked up and said, apparently, there wasn't, it wasn't official, but one of the, uh, the wife of someone on uh, the production crew was a genuine psychotherapist, and she was like the unofficial consultant for mental health stuff in this and that's why it, i think it gels so so well for me it's, it's such a good portrayal of how brains and mental health mm. work in a sci-fi context it comes back to what we were saying earlier about how when you have a sci-fi idea you gotta cherry pick in a way of what we're mm. gonna take as like this is the way a certain thing works 
versus this is the stuff we can invent and say, oh, this works because of X, Y, and Z. And in this, like you say, it's like they've decided to say this is how brains work. Because you can say, here's, here's an idea where you can implant, imagine time into somebody. That That's your big mm. concept. Like, you accept that. And then you say, okay, well, if we're accepting that as the thing we're inventing, then the thing that that has to mean logically and, and emotionally for the episode to work is the consequences of that, which is what we see play out. And I think it's really interesting that you say it is kind of like the mirror episode to the inner light in a way, whereas mm. Picard got 40 years of bliss, like happy times, and the trauma, I guess, of realizing you had this other life and then losing it. And then this is the flip side of you have 20 mm. years of hell. You would really want to get rid of this. And I yeah. think seeing how those two characters both react to living through that is fascinating. And I think O'Brien's definitely the right choice for this because he is such Absolutely. an everyman. He is such a guy who you don't want to see this happen to, but you can see out of everyone in there, he's probably someone who will be able to handle it and like adapt to it. And so seeing him struggle to do that at first makes it so much more powerful because you think he'll get there eventually, but maybe hmm. maybe he won't. Maybe he'll never be the same again. And it's really uh, it's really impactful. How can I just ask a question? Like because it's the thing I was always left with after the inner light, Dean, was the deterioration of the brain over a long enough time period. Like people who live into their nineties to the hundreds, like what are we looking at in terms of like its ability to kind of perform its functions like there? If you're adding an additional twenty years of memories in there, is it like my hard drive <laughs> is getting full? Uh, and is it starting to play up now? Do you think there's a, a impact of those 20 or 40 years that has been added to somebody's memories? It's like, is it fucking with like how, how they remember even who they were before? Because it's so far in the past of them. That is one concern I, I still have with both of these in a, in a respect. I mean, I think if it had some sort of, you know, if it had the backbone, they could have called this one the inner dark as opposed to the inner light, which would have been a nice little homage to it. But I think hard time is a better name, so that's, that's fine. But yeah, that, that's, that's one concern I had in that... In terms of the, the underlying science, there's no actually known capacity for the brain's ability to store memory. The only limit is physiologicalism. We age, our brain gets tired, it wears out, it, it dies eventually because physics, entropy is a thing. But if you can sort of condense memory learning into a sort of brief period when the brain is still young and active and perfectly functional, there's no real reason why we couldn't do that. I mean, but it's also like memory isn't stored like a hard drive is. In that every time you meet your partner, you're not forming a new memory of them. You're triggering the old one, which is then linked to this new context. If it's you know, any, any any new details to it, and memories are constantly upgraded. And forgetting seems to be the underlying principle of the brain in that there's a process which, whereby memories which aren't rigorously activated or aren't triggered very often, they are removed. Like the brain's constantly housekeeping and sweeping up stuff. Like don't need that, don't need that, don't need this. Defragging, yeah, yeah, defragging. Yeah, new, a new discovery. Like, well, I've never used that. I'll just, I've just been it. And that's why later on, ten years later, like, oh, I wish I knew what that was. You can't. It's not there anymore. It's gone. And it happens a lot during our teens. There's a whole process called pruning, whereby all our childhood memories which we don't need are clogging up the system, and therefore they are binned. And that's why teenagers need to sleep a lot more because your brain's constantly doing that. So you know, it's a, it's a whole thing to that. So if you had a technology where you could have twenty years of experiences in like three hours. I wouldn't say the brain couldn't handle that. It's you know, if it's physiologically active, it would it'd be more demanding. You have to feel like like, like the old Barclay thing, constantly giving him energy drinks and sugars and stuff. You need to, you know, keep the brain supplied with resources to, to stay alive. Or maybe your brain would have woken up from that with like is wasted. His entire body is just completely shriveled because his brain's absorbed all the energy. But that's a, that's a sort of underlying physics thing. Whereas yeah, I think this could happen personally. I mean, maybe some neuroscientists think. You're talking out your arse yet again, Burnett, and uh, I'll get more strong emails. But I think that's actually not such a bad thing. But you're right in that 
Yeah, because it's actually physically mm. a young brain mm. as, it, you know, it's, it's, it's in his 40s, you know, so it's not, mm. its ability is not being worn out by this. It's just those, you know, yeah. memories are there. They, they've been potentially replacing yeah. stuff. And he'll have forgotten an awful lot of that incarceration as well. Yeah, it would be very, very monotonous, very repetitive. There you go, the brain doesn't need all of that. Like, can you remember the, the, the 37th commute you had to a day job you didn't like? You don't. You, the brain remembers just aspects, certain general, generalities. But um, what I like about this one is that O'Brien is still reeling from this. You know, he's still coming to terms with who he was and who he's, what he's gone through. And the fact that it, quote-unquote, didn't happen is irrelevant. O'Brien says, it was real to me. And it was, because what is real from our perspective than what's lodged in your brain? Everything that's real that we've ever been through, we only know that because it's a memory in our head. And therefore, if you insert memory in someone, else, someone else's head, that's as real to them as anything. So you know, it makes perfectly sound scientific sense in that respect. But even in the light, ignoring like the, the physics and like the whole like you know, advanced technology stuff, Picard just went through 40 years of an alternative life and then found out that his beloved family and wife and children and grandchildren died thousands of years ago. And he's back to work a couple of hours later. Like, that's not... <laughs> that, that, I think he should, he, should have, you know, he should have gone back to the chateau for a bit. Just have some downtime again, man. Mm. I know he, his simulation was more traumatic, but that was only like a week and he got a, you know, he, he got a few months off. A more realistic apps ending for that one would be like, I barely remember who, who what my job is. Because mm. it would be in like 25 years before he accepted, like, you know, that I'm going to live this life now and he would have put all that behind him you're right it just mm. it i think the inner light does wrap up too totally. quickly on that yeah, it almost needs to be a two-parter <laughs> like, and, and that's when with andrew keaton like it's fine but you know get over it let's move on to better things yeah that's why i like this one because it does it so much better like jake is coaching him saying remember this tool like they're doing it they're doing it right and that mm. i think mm. that makes a mm. big difference yeah when you're, you're, tackling subjects like this yeah i love the character of ichar which is a fabrication in his own mind of something to help him cope mm. companion in the cell you know defense mechanism against going crazy essentially but Liam, did you know the actor playing ichar no we have a connection to this man well in a sense so this is the lead actor from body double brian de palmer's like <clears> uh, oh is it crazy <laughs> twisted neo-noir i basically have a, a relationship with where you lent it to me go this film's i don't know if it's good or not but it's, it's fucking weird like watched it and it took me back to like pre-losing my virginity watching movies about like sex like i actually have like a, a list on that box which i we published one day it was just all the films that like pre-losing <laughs> uh, virginity like, like i just got like <laughs> and yeah body double made me feel that way and it's like this really kind of like repressed sexually frustrated guy who's like spying on like a woman from afar like you know who's been told to watch this apartment he sees her there but he is such a Barkley in that <laughs> film, isn't he? Would yes. you say that? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that kind of type. And then we watch the extras and he is like almost the exact same type of person, <laughs> it seems, in, in, a, in the pilot season. So I watched it and go, it's a bit trash. I, I can't like it. And then I just couldn't stop thinking about it. I was like, and I handed it back and go, look, Liam, there's your £15 you wasted on that. And eventually I bought it myself. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a completely mad movie, Body Double. I mean, the scene that really signifies how crazy it is is the, the moment on the beach where him and that woman yes. kiss and he yeah, the yeah. camera swirls around them for like 10 hours and they're, it's like they're almost, you know, having sex on the beach. He's, he's completely bonkers. It's a vibe movie, isn't it? It's like, it's, uh, I think somebody said, like, it's a bit like Inherent Vice. Nobody knows what's going on, but it's a vibe, man. Like, you just enjoy it. It's giving, it's giving the synths 
like 80s got like a really young uh, Melanie Griffith and yes, uh, yeah. add, uh, what's that? Add Frankie Goes to Hollywood on the soundtrack. <laughs> like, nuts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff. And like <laughs> you say, if you saw the cover of that VHS on on the video store shelf as a 13 year old boy, you'd be like, oh, babe. I can't wait to rent this. <laughs> yeah. If I if only I wasn't the size of No Hour Visitor, I would have probably been a cabin. But... <laughs> yeah, it's Craig Wasson who plays Ichar in this. So, you know, he's had a lead in a movie in the 80s and yet here he is in TV. But it's a really good performance. Mm. I really like mm. him in this. And, and as he appears, sort of is a kind of like fragment of the memory of this. And sort of, you know, he's seeing him around Deep Space Nine miles when um, uh, he's in recovery, but finding it difficult to like move on because he's haunted by... The fact that he ultimately has killed this man like accidentally, but that's in a moment of like pure animalistic instinct, you know, for survival, you know, and it's really good because this is tackling that uh, heart of Star Trek of like, you know, he really references like the founding principles of the show and like how he's broken them in a sense uh, by reverting to his, our primal ways. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, this is the definition of what Deep Space Nine is as a show isn't it? Which is Ronald D. Yeah. Moore and the other showrunners of Deep Space Nine basically rallying against Roddenberry's utopian vision in a way, or kind of criticising it, because, you know, that speech he has. When we were growing up, they used to tell us humanity had evolved. That mankind had outgrown hate and rage. But when it came down to it, when I had the chance to show that no matter what anyone did to me, I was still an evolved human being. I failed. I repaid kindness with blood. I was no better than an animal. That's saying, like, you know, they told us we'd evolved past this, but actually, when it came down to the crunch, I hadn't. I was just a fucking beast. I murdered this man. I like that when he finds the handkerchief of the food he's been covering, it's like, I thought they just like pebbles. Yeah, yeah like, that's what I thought. I, I yeah, it was like a stone collection. Oh, he was going to share his pebbles with me. <laughs> but also, I was like... He says with no teeth How left. did he know he was going to share them with him? Because just that there was two of everything. Because I just thought maybe he's just no, a greedy... It looked like he was going to be like a... <laughs> I thought he was going to pull on Ray Winstone and, like, you know, whack him over the head with, like, his sock of pebbles. <laughs> yeah, because he didn't say there wasn't, like, a note on it going, like, all four miles, like, this side. <laughs> it's like, he's just going to eat all himself, mate. Don't feel bad, yeah. mate. He deserved to die. Little posted with him a mile all the time saying besties. Yeah, yeah, Like Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen going, hey, <laughs> Coney Island or something. I mean, I, I loved this. You know, I, I'll just I'll just say in terms of my final like thoughts now, like you know, I thought it was brilliant. I mean, I kind of like felt myself as I was going through the three episodes, like looking forward to the DS9 one because I just on a real DS9 hype mm-hmm. at the moment. Um, it, like we got to this episode and straight away I was like, oh, what an amazing concept! And then the actual way they handled it, I thought was really ahead of its time for a mid nineties episode of television. Absolutely, they actually say depression like at the end like you know i thought that was big and it has that sort of latent image vibe where you know it doesn't wrap up neatly in a bow at the end you know bashir is very quick to tell him like look you can have the counseling i can give you the antidepressants or whatever the future version of antidepressants is but actually you know this is going to be a long hard battle and you go and although 
uh, you know, I have no doubt that they probably didn't reference it the next week because that was the nature of network TV in those days. You still feel like it is gonna it, it's gonna continue on, and you did feel you really were worried for O'Brien. Like you know, by the time he's screaming at his kid, Daddy, come see what I drew. Not now, honey. Okay. I'm sure it's only temporary. You'll be back at work before you know it. Daddy, you have to come see. Look, can we talk about this later? Daddy, come on! Not now. Please, Daddy, please! I said not now, right? Oh, I said not! What are you doing? I didn't mean to. I'm sorry. I was like, oh shit, you know, is this guy not going to go back? And then he's about to fucking top himself. And all that. I was like, wow, this is really hardcore. And uh, yeah, I thought it was an amazing episode. Dean, give us your final mm. thoughts on this one. Well, pretty much like you say, it's like such a very thorough and accurate and faithful and helpful portrayal of the mental health consequences going through something explicit trauma like this. It, it's not one incident. There's acute trauma. There's a chronic trauma. Like there's, it's not one thing happened to him, but it lasted twenty years. So like it's sort of you know, it's like a build up thing. So PTSD can manifest in so many ways. It's it's really well done in that respect. And I think for me, the scientifically, the best part I kind of liked was Bashir saying, "I can't remove this. This is part of you now. You have to deal with this." And that's such a. It wasn't even like a. I don't think it was even like prioritized. It was like it wasn't a throwaway line, but it was like just a okay, and then then that, and then it was like a it's like a, a a logical step in the episode. But that's such a profound concept, which so many people don't quite appreciate in the modern world. It's like you know, we still equate mental health problems with physical ones, which suggests they can be cured, they can be remedied, they can be fixed. You know, there's you know, they, they they don't last forever. Mental health problems don't work that way. They are chronic. They are, you know, persistent. They are a part of you. They are part of your mind. That's mental. That's how that's how that's how mental stuff works. And to see that in a beloved sci-fi show from like the mid nineties, it's such a weirdly sort of inspiring thing. I know Star Trek has inspired many people in many different ways, like the representation of you know, black people and Russians in the early series and showing like these good ideals that Roddenberry had. Uh, but this sort of stuff, even though it's a dark episode, even though it's arguably going against Roddenberry's vision it is in its nonetheless inspiring in that it shows like these things are real this is how they work and in 400 years time we are still going to be the same species and they'll still affect us in the same ways and that's such a useful thing to have people see and be aware of to, to refer back to in, in a mainstream network tv show at the time it's it's you know it's it deserves plaudits for that alone I think, I think. Yeah, I think they're accepting that, you know, these characters are role models for the people watching as well. And, you know, the, how they handle this, the fact that it can't be cured with, like, some kind of, like, prop that lights up that, that Alexander Siddig could just wheel mm. out and go, <coughs> okay, wave over the head. It looks like, you, you know, you think that's all gone is really good. Uh, this is my favourite episode of the three. Yeah, one of the best episodes of Star Trek I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, it's like, a really good one. Yeah. It was an instant classic for me. I love films where people are in the hole for a long period. <laughs> Mm. like Papillon love visiting that like I love the bit where the, the guy he fucks up again and like he said sending Steve McQueen back to like solitary confinement for five years and just says like you know masturbate as little as possible or sap the strength I'm like yeah this is like this is some hardcore <laughs> shit it. right here like you know. <laughs> <laughs> so it was tapping all those buttons for me <laughs> not even uh, <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, I love the way it's shot. I love the lighting in the cell. I like the stuff that's still a family-friendly approach where, you know, the, the worst parts of his incarceration are hinted at. And you don't need to just hit people over the head with the worst aspects. It's all, you know, what's implied is worse than, you know, seeing it, I think. The torture, like, you know, there's the beatings. You know, they talk about, they reference them, but you don't know, have to see them, which is a good, good step, I think. Mm, mm. That would also take away from the violence that Meany commits against each other would you know if you'd seen people getting hurt beforehand mm-hmm. it would take away from that shocking moment i think yeah yeah and it is shocking because the fact that i think it's the thing of he doesn't even realize he's killed him i think is what show because he is like mm. bestial by that point because it's just about getting that food that's all he cares about and just instantly as soon as he's incapacitated him he's just all over that grub and then he realizes that he was big afraid he's just kind of joking laughing it off and then he's like oh i, I fucking killed him like you know it's just yeah mm. it is really really amazing done and one thing i will say funny it's funny uh dean that you kind of referred to this by an alternative title of the inner dark um, as a kind of you know twist on the inner light. I mean, I do love the inner light. I think it. I, I think it's great. But I think um, it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I think it is fantastic. But for me, it's more rather than this kind of being a, a, a replacement for. It's more a kind of inverse version in terms of in the inner light. It's about how kind of you know he had a a very very happy time in his kind of fantasy mm. and about now having those memories of knowing they weren't real will kind of break his heart. Whereas with this, he knows they weren't real, but they feel fucking real in his head. He believes, you know, he is a murderer, essentially. Mm. So it's a kind of, kind of inverse version. Yeah, loved it. Matt? Yeah, I mean, I love this. I think it's, I think along with something like Duet, which has long been my favourite of the DS9 that I've seen so far. I think it's a real shining example of, you know, the power of truly standalone episodes in a in a long-running show. It's, it allows you to highlight a concept and, and hear the idea, firstly, of a technology source that allows you to experience prison time in, in sort of nanoseconds, as it were, is really, really <coughs> interesting. The kind of implications of that are really dark as well. And then to pair it with uh, an O'Brien story, I think like the TNG episode we we talked about earlier it's another one that kind of pushes to the side a lot of the main cast in order to focus on somebody else for the better and it is so dark and I think ultimately you know it is about the healing powers of therapy in a way which like the TNG episode again is is rare to see in in the early 90s and at the same time you know acknowledging that and acknowledging that these problems exist and PTSD is real and depression is real Acknowledging all that is one thing, but then going the length it does to say there's also no quick fix, I think is equally as new and exciting and progressive as just the idea of mentioning it in the first place with in genuine seriousness. So I think to bring up these issues and then to, to end on the notes that it does, but it still doesn't end on a proper downer because, you know, you've got... You've got O'Brien worrying that he's just become this kind of monster. And of course, Bashir saying, you know, real monsters, they don't wonder if they should regret what they're doing. So the fact that you are feeling regret shows that you, you're you not fully gone, essentially. And I think that's such a, a true, you know, something that I think a lot of people need to hear. People who have gone through terrible things like this, if they think, you know, I've done some bad stuff to survive. Am I a horrible person? And it's like, well, you know, if you're personally reflecting on something like this, then there's still something in you that 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 obviously shows otherwise. So... Yeah, I think there's so many thematic things going on here. It's all wrapped up in, you know, it's not a two-parter. It's just a one-episode, sub-45-minute bit of TV. And, uh, yeah, I think it's really astounding. 
yeah, also he did uh, 20 Years for Murder. So it's actually quite fair in it when you look at it. Yeah, 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 yeah. it's very, very true. Yeah, because he was falsely accused. <laughs> Time served. Of the espionage. So, yeah, yes, it's, just, it's just, it's an invert of like, you yeah, committed the crime at the end of the sentence. <laughs> yes, yeah, 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 yeah. 20 years of. <laughs> so he still deserved penance. it. Yeah. But thank you so much, Dean, for coming and guiding us through the science of track using your neuroscientist expertise. It's been really, really fascinating um, to hear these kind of episodes you selected specifically to kind of, you know, guide us through that kind of world. I feel like I've really... got Spock's brain now. I've, I've learned so much. <laughs> 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 yeah, no, it, has, it genuinely has been really, really fascinating to hear it from that perspective, and especially with hard time uh, as well. Um, Dean, where can we find you online and your work if people want to check it out? Uh, well, uh, my next book coming out is actually addresses many of the things discussed in this episode. Is psychological, available on February fourth, twenty twenty one, in the UK and the Netherlands for various reasons. So like, it's all about how the brain handles mental health trauma and uh, why things affect us the way they do. I'm uh, trying to get out there because I think it's a really important one, post-pandemic, of course. Uh, but otherwise, you can find me on Facebook at uh, Dean Burnett Writing Person. I don't like to use the term author, even though I have ample evidence to do so. I find it pretentious. And on Twitter, I am at Garrowboy, G-A-R-W-B-O-Y. And the Garrow Valley is where I'm from in Wales. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're completely right, uh, dear. I mean, this this year, I would say, has kind of been put put the real pressure on for yeah. everyone. This has been uh, our hard time. Of mental health. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 we've just yeah, like in a few years' time, you'd hope that all this lockdown time we've experienced has just started to disappear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's no, there's yeah. no virus. You've been babbling about like, something called yeah. coronavirus. <laughs> well, I have watched my son as well draw patterns in the sand, so that's another thing. <laughs> well, we hopefully don't kill him, Paul. At the end of the day, <laughs> <laughs> for hiding food from you, it's like where is it? <laughs> yeah, and uh, you can find us at Spotlight Pod on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Uh, you can find all our kind of latest announcements and stuff to do with the show on there as we don't usually know kind of what we're doing next from episode to episode or how the, when these will go out. So keep an eye on the social medias. That's where all the kind of announcements will be made. You can drop us an email at spotlightpod at gmail.com. Any physicists who want to drop in and kind of, you know, slag off Dean, like just send the emails there. We'll forward them all to him uh, to <laughs> challenge that. And all fellow neuroscientists, come and give a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, I think Dean can agree, is scientifically accurate rating for Spotlight Pod. So, <laughs> I would leave us So, uh, until next time, it's goodbye from me, Liam. That's a goodbye from me, Matt. And me, Paul. And goodbye from our guest. Thank you, Dean. Dr. Dean Murray. That's right. That's why I'm here. Thank you. It's official now. <laughs> <laughs> Science will triumph.